than what the Lord Jesus wants us to be a part of. So that's awesome. Awesome. Okay, well, let's get into our text. We're in Matthew chapter 14. This is a lengthy passage this morning, so I'm not going to have you stand. Uh, We're going to cover the end of chapter 14 on into verse 20 of chapter 15 because it really encompasses one uh, specific situation. And so I'm going to read the text as usual, and you just follow along. You can see it on the screen um, or follow along in your Bible, and I would certainly encourage you to do that as well. Uh, Also, sometimes people have the thought that I shouldn't write in my Bible or or make any notes in it. And if that's your conviction, that's fine. But let me encourage you that it's okay to do so. Uh, Make all kinds of notes you want to make. Somebody asked me one time, Bruce, what kind of Bible would you rather give the Lord Jesus one day? One that's never been opened and the pages are all crisp and clean or one that's been worn out from use and and writing in it and highlighting and and I think certainly the latter wouldn't you wouldn't the Lord be greatly pleased with that as we just embrace all of his words so I would encourage you to do that as you read through this so here we go in verse 34 of chapter 14 when they had crossed over they came to land at Gennesaret And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Now in chapter 15. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Do you, not, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. All right, so that's a lot. uh, And I'm going to do my best to quickly go through this. I think much of it is self-explanatory if you listen carefully. But I really want to attack what I believe is the theme of all of this. And that is, as I've titled this message, Empty Hearts lead to empty worship. Empty hearts lead to empty worship. Jesus is really addressing the issue of an empty heart. And I'm talking about a spiritually 
empty heart. And that heart then is going to be very empty in its worship. Now just going back and setting the stage here a little bit, as you remember following along with us, that by the time Jesus began his ministry, uh, which would by this point be probably a couple years, uh, hypocritical worship had really become a way of life for the Hebrew people. And I said that very specifically and uniquely that way because I think you see that in the text as Jesus is addressing it. And that's because ritual worship took over for what God really intended for the people and from the people. And that typically happens. It's because ritual and routine often take over and then the heart just goes through the motions. That's often the problem. And that's why I've even said this morning, we don't want to be a church that just goes through routines and rituals. Not that they're bad. There are certain things that are certainly good. Uh, Coming here on a Sunday morning is a good ritual. It's a good routine. But we don't want to be so stuck in those things that we miss the point of what God really wants from our hearts. That was what Israel was dealing with, and Jesus knew it. And so basically he's again saying, when a heart just goes through the motions, instead of what God really wants from that heart, then there is a hypocrisy that will grow from that. That wearing the mask, that pretending to be one thing, but not really being the genuine. The psalmist said this in Psalm 24, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Boy, this is the answer to the question, isn't it? Who's going to go to heaven? Listen, he who has clean hands and what? A pure heart. A pure heart. But because Israel didn't obey the Lord and didn't follow the things that God had commanded them and continued on their worship without a heart that longed for him, God ultimately said this through Isaiah in chapter 1. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. Can you imagine the Lord saying that? I'm weary of burying them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And then he followed that with verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil. In other words, examine your hearts. Look inwardly and once you look at your heart, then repent. Be devoted to me out of the depths of your soul, not just from your head or just from what you do outwardly. And when you do, notice verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1. The Lord says, though your sins be as scarlet, in other words, though you are completely engulfed by your sins, they will be white as snow. As they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And then later in chapter 66 of Isaiah, God will affirm this. Notice in verse 2, to this one I will look. In other words, you want to know who I notice? God is saying. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. All of that just speaks overwhelmingly to the effect of the heart as the spirit of God is touching that individual. And God makes all that clear because unless the heart of the worshiper is cleared or clarified, purified, God is saying you can't worship me the way that I want you to worship me. Your worship is not genuine. It's not actual worship. Basically saying, any worship that you attempt to do without a clean heart is pointless. 
and it's empty. Now, just to be clear, the word worship here means, and sometimes people have wondered about this, is just what it sounds like. It's to uh, technically to honor, uh, to bow down. Some have said it's to tip the head or to tip the hand, basically understanding it to be to give reverence and honor to God. That's what he's talking about. So when we gather together to worship, we're here not for the sake of doing some outward ritual because it's a Sunday morning thing to do, but we're here to pay reverence to our God. Everything that we do when we gather as a people, and even individually, but specifically on Sunday morning, should be with the attitude of looking into my heart and asking God to purify it regularly. Not We're talking necessarily about salvation. It could be that for you if that's the place that you're in, that you've never fully trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never understood that and you're not sure what all of that's about. Well, salvation is about recognizing that Jesus came to pay the debt of our sin. And he will forgive that soul that trusts him and bring that person to heaven with him one day. But it's not just necessarily about salvation, but you and I still live in this sinful body, right? And so we need to be regularly purified of our sins. And so we regularly go to the Lord in a heart of repentance, not from our heads, but from our hearts. And so it's not the external things that matter. Yes, they're important in their own way. Coming here this morning was an external thing, but hopefully you came because your heart wanted to be here, not just because it seemed like the right thing to do. What God is really after is the attitude of our heart. One writer put it this way, the attitude of the worshiper's heart toward God is what really matters. So, you know, I hope you're hearing the Spirit already asking you this morning, uh, what's your heart attitude? Why are you here? What have you really come for? Now, with all that as a starting point, let's go to the narrative here because we're going to see some interesting things as Jesus points out empty worship. You'll notice that the Lord is showing just that. Here's the distinction between a heart that is really a follower of me and one that really is going after nothing and is just living hypocritical. And really because of several things. First, empty hearts only look for what satisfies the flesh. Empty hearts, that's our point number one. Empty hearts only satisfy and long to satisfy the flesh. John, in fact, back in the Gospel of John, if you remember last time we were together and we talked about this from the the previous section, John made the point that when Peter got in the boat and Jesus got in the boat, remember Matthew didn't say this, but John said they were immediately at the shore. Okay, so that was a very interesting thing. And that place that they were going, and this is just to set the background for us as we see this in, in its clarity, Matthew tells us the place was called Gennesaret. Okay, so just for a visual this morning, I want to show you a little picture here on the screen of what that looks like, and hopefully you can see this okay. This is the Sea of Galilee up in the northern area of Israel, and Capernaum up by the red balloon there is where Jesus has been. That's his hometown Uh, where at least he has been doing his ministry from. He's made one journey across, and you don't see it here, but to the the region of Gadara that's under Hippos there. But now he's in Gennesaret. So if you could just picture this, the disciples had left Jesus at the last section. They were out in the boat, probably a mile or so off the shore, but planning to come to Gennesaret, but that's when the storm happened. Okay, So now they're there, and, and so you see that in your mind. And so Matthew then tells us, because news travels really fast, and you wouldn't think that'd be the case in Jesus' day, but it did evidently, uh, people evidently sent some kind of public 
public bulletin or some kind of technical bulletin to everybody to go see him. But the reality is they weren't really wanting to follow him spiritually, and Jesus knew that. What they really wanted was for him to do something for them. And specifically that was to heal their physical needs. And Matthew makes that obvious. Look again at verse 36. When they found him, they implored him. That's an intense desire. That's a begging almost. That they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. Now that's a wonderful passage. It really is. And I don't want to take away from the setting here. Uh, because it sounds like the people are really making a very faithful and dedicated commitment here. I mean, to have that kind of longing and desire to trust Jesus is is an amazing commitment. But Matthew, interestingly, makes no mention in this text about the people wanting to be with Jesus because they recognized him as God. Isn't that interesting? They didn't see him as that. They didn't see him as the redeemer of Israel. We've been through this many times before, but the same theme is, is recurring. And that's really because they just wanted something from Jesus. Their flesh was aroused. They needed fleshly help. And so they thought if we could just get near him, maybe he would do for us what he's done for the people that we've heard him do, the things that he's done for them. But again, there was no real desire for the spiritual healing, only the physical healing, which prompts the question. This morning, and kind of the impetus for my questions earlier is what, earlier, what is the real reason that you're here? Why did you come this morning? Is there some physical need that you have? Notice my question to you in your prayer time was to ask one another, what do you need God to do for you? Well, that's a good question. Usually, it's some physical response, right? It's something tangible. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying because that's not wrong. Praise the Lord. We have a God who is able and willing to heal and do what's necessary. We have a lot of needs that only God can fix in the physical. And so I don't want you to hear that that's wrong because Jesus did come to heal and he came to care for people physically. Obviously, he wouldn't have done the things that he did. And so that's not wrong. But did you notice Jesus was also gracious and merciful to them even though that's not really what he came for just look at the picture here he understood that in order to really reach the hearts of the people he had to first do the physical it's kind of like the maslow's hierarchy of needs now i'm not going to show you that on the screen but if you've done any kind of studies in psychology you know who maslow was he developed this triangular picture of man's basic needs, how to reach the person. And he starts off with just that, that in order to have somebody hear you and instruct you, you're going to have to make sure that their basic needs are met, right? I remember years ago when I was starting in my freshman year of college, I had a business professor that was one of those Wednesday night classes, one week, uh, one night a week classes. You ever been there? Three hours long, three and a half hours long. And he turns to the board and, and uh, writes M-A equals S-E. You've heard this before probably. And we're all ran, writing down, you know, scrambling. What's he writing? Here's the first notes. The professor hadn't said anything. And he says, you know what this means? I don't know. It's got to be something to do with this, the class. No, the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. Right? So he understood and said, we're going to take breaks. Because I know you're not going to hear what I'm trying to teach you if you're 
hind parts are getting to the place where you're not going to be able to do anything but think about that. Okay? And so that was Maslow's point. We need to have the basic needs met. Let's take our friends in Kentucky right now. We don't know the people. But it's not going to be a wise thing to go share the gospel with people necessarily if they're looking for food and the need for clothing and shelter. Right? People have to have their basic needs met. And then you can develop into the other things, again, which is what Maslow does. He talks about the psychological needs. And I'm not promoting Maslow. I'm just saying that I think he's right in some of these things. So Jesus understood all that better than anybody. And so he does just that. But I'm saying to us this morning, as I was reading through this and thinking about this, that we are really not far off from these people who were recognizing Jesus. Many times in our prayers, we are asking the Lord to do something physical for us, heal someone, somebody we love and care about and, and have a need for. We have some other physical needs compared to what I think God really wants from us is to attack the heart, to address the issues of the heart. God can take care of the physical, and he uses us for that. That's why we will collect things like we're talking about for the people in Kentucky. But only God can change the heart. And so as much as you and I know to reciprocate when there's a need of providing the physical, whatever that might be, we can do that part. But we need God to change the heart. Right? And so the attacking of all of this is the recognizing that my heart will be empty, people's hearts will be empty of what God really wants until the heart is truly changed. But again, Jesus understood that. And so what he really wanted was the spiritual healing, but he knew he had to start with the physical. And so he was gracious and kind. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman when he met her at the well? If you don't know that story, Jesus was passing through with his disciples and he meets this woman who had been married five times or been at least and was not even married to the last husband. And she has this dialogue with him about worship. You know, Israel says that the only place of worship is in Jerusalem. Samaritans say that this is the place of worship. But notice what Jesus says. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, listen to what Jesus says, the true worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You know what he was doing? He was correcting the woman in a loving way. He was saying, your heart is bent on the where the worship should occur, whether it's in Samaria or in Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying, that's not the point at all. What God really wants from you is a heart that belongs to him. And we have to do the same thing. we got to come to Jesus for spiritual healing first or our worship of him will be empty. Notice again the psalmist in Psalm 51 says, Create in me what? He didn't say create in me a clean body. And renew a steadfast what? A spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. In verse 17 of the same chapter, the sacrifices of God are a broken what? Spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So again, very simply, beloved, in this first point, just understand this, that what God wants from you and me 
on a normal, regular basis is to cry out to him for help, yes. But not so much the physical, as much as that is important. And God will take care of the physical. He wants our hearts. He is longing for us to cry out to him for spiritual healing. And until we do, we will stay locked in a heart that is just looking at the externals. And that's where most people stay stuck. They cannot get past the external to look into the, into the internal. All right, here's the second thing that comes from an empty heart. True worship is not possible when an empty heart, or from an empty heart, because an empty heart is basically selfish. It's basically selfish. Notice in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, Pharisees come, and they basically give Jesus a hard time. Notice they come from Jerusalem, meaning that Jerusalem is far south, and so these guys were kind of the big wheels. They were the big deal. Had traveled this far, they wouldn't have normally been up in this region. But evidently they heard that Jesus was doing an amazing work, and so they come to see for themselves and to attack him for who he says he is. They ask him this question, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, you and I read that and we're like, what's the big deal? Right? I grew up on a farm. There were lots of days I didn't wash my hands. Okay? Don't be grossed out by that. That's just reality. But in Jesus' day, this was a huge deal. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it was a huge deal because it was believed that if you don't wash your hands a certain way, and this was the very physical part of it, you could be allowing a demon to actually enter into your body. Let me give you a quote here that one commentator wrote on this subject. He said, some of the rabbis taught that a certain demon named Shibta, I think I'm saying that right, attached itself to people's hands while they slept, and that if he were not ceremonially washed away, he would actually enter the body through the food handled by defiled hands. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were to tell our, my grandson that, who has trouble sleeping at night because he's afraid that somebody's going to come through the window and get him, you know how kids think at times, that if you don't wash your hands, a demon's going to enter your body, that's going to go a long ways, right? And it did. It went so far that the people became so accustomed to the outward act of washing their hands that it became greater than even the word of God. It really trumped the word of the Lord. Now, beyond that, if that weren't bad enough, it was also believed, and here's another quote, that whoever has had his, excuse me, whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel another whoever is an Israelite, and eats his common food with rinsed hands, may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. Okay? Awesome. So as long as you perform the required ritual of the way you're to go about washing your hands, and there was a very specific way of doing that. It was to remove the defilement by the uplifting hands that would have to drip down and come off the wrist and not run down the arm and then they would turn this way so it came off the fingers. This was required for these particular reasons and more. And they took that not just from their own thinking and their own philosophy, but they took it from a misunderstanding of God's word. Let's go back to what we read a moment ago. I don't know if you caught this or not. 
But in Isaiah 1.16, wash yourselves. You hear that? Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Now, if you're thinking outwardly, physically, then you're going to think this makes sense, right? And so it will become a common practice for you. Again, back to the psalmist in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? He who has what? Clean hands. They just left out the pure heart part. Because it becomes easy to do the outward, right? We can see it. Outward things become the box that we're able to live in. And we all construct boxes of life, and we feel more comfortable in those boxes. It makes us feel like we're actually accomplishing something. And that's what was happening here. And so to fulfill their misguided desires, the Jewish teachers, religious leaders, taught that this tradition of hand-washing was even greater than what Scripture says. And I have verified that myself. I've told you before about the two Orthodox uh, Jewish guys that I met one time when I was visiting someone at the prison. Um, I saw them get out of the car. They had the black hats on, the, the, uh, the ringlets coming down from them, the white shirts, the black pants, and I was so excited about talking to them. And I finally got an opportunity, and I said, what do you do with Isaiah 53? If you don't know the chapter, you know that's very clearly about the Messiah and Christ coming. And he stopped me and he said, you have to understand, we don't look at Scripture the same way you do. We go by the traditions of our elders. And that was a perfect illustration, even in modern day, of exactly what Jesus was dealing with. Traditions began to trump the very word of God to the point where they would push it out. And so Jesus is doing what he should be doing as God, and that is bringing them back to the real issue, the issue of the heart. Which, by the way, beloved, is always what God is doing, right? Everything he brings up in our lives, no matter what the circumstance is, is he's dealing with the issues of our hearts. Because that's where the problem always is. Now, just on this subject, though, before you laugh at the Jews too quickly, let's just think for a second about some of the traditions of man. I mean, just recently, Debbie and I were up in the Amish country. And that's a very unique place, right? Good, wholesome people, but they have some, in my opinion, some very strange traditions. We were driving along and we had to wait for traffic to come as we passed the black horse and black cart and the people riding in there, you know, and, and, and so that was a very interesting thing. Believing that through these things, they're removing themselves from the world and becoming more pure. Mennonites, similar in their dress, and their modest lifestyles. And I'm not judging anybody here. I'm just simply pointing out what's the obvious. Catholics, use of ceremony, rituals in worship, praying for the dead, having communion a certain way, the relics, all of that becomes very traditional. Churches behave themselves in certain ways traditionally that some will say that a person has to be baptized in order to be truly saved. Or a person must be baptized even some will say, in a particular church. We've had some people that have said that. You know, I came out of a church before where they taught us that you couldn't just be baptized anywhere. You had to be baptized in that particular church building. Some believe you have to speak in tongues to be truly filled with the Spirit or be truly born again. Uh, even the place, I'm talking about the physical location of worship, has become a tradition. And... 
where the thinking is that God only meets us in certain places in our lives. Some people, even in our own church family over the years, have held to that very strongly, that we can't do anything in this particular room that would be outside of what traditionally has been the case for the sanctuary. And I would give you the uh, the same understanding that this is a very special room. It should be treated special. But the real issue is not the room. The real issue is our hearts, right? God doesn't dwell in this room. God dwells in our souls, in, our, in, the, in the hearts, the depths of who we are. But we've gotten lost. Humanity has gotten lost in the traditions of, of man over time. And you could put a lot of things in this. Charles Spurgeon once said this, He asked his congregation, if there were no Sunday morning service at 11, how many of you would be Christians? Right? Well, where did the 11 o'clock hour come from? Well, that's not something of Scripture. That's a tradition of man, and that's what Spurgeon was trying to, to point out. Some people have struggled with the flow of the service. In other words, this is when we do the doxology. This is when we have the prayer. This is when we have this. This is the way this is structured. Um, some would even say, and I even had somebody say this to me one time, that when I first had uh, you come forward to take part in communion, this was years ago, they said, oh, I guess we're going to be Episcopal now. And I thought, well, no. <laughs> but you see, the mindset is easily gravitated towards the construct of the box, right? We're all like that in our own ways. And if you look at your own heart, you'll probably see very similar things where you might even say, I don't have a biblical argument against this, but I just don't feel this or that is right on certain things. Okay. Well, that becomes a matter of opinion if you can't find it in scripture, right? I'm just simply saying we do have this same issue. And so before we're too hard on the Jews, let's just make sure we look at our own hearts. Here's the third thing. Empty hearts really ultimately invalidate the word of God. And that's really what Jesus says here. I'm not going to read this whole section here, but beginning in verses 3 through 7, Jesus says this in verse 6, when they're talking about how they're not honoring their father and mother, he brings that up. And by this you invalidate, the New American Standard says, the word of God for the sake of your tradition. What Jesus is basically saying there is how I titled this particular point is that your hearts are empty. They're not really filled with the truth of God and the desire for God. And so your traditions have trumped everything. And you basically then, when you do that, you invalidate, you nullify, you destroy the word of God for what it really is. Now, specifically, Jesus is referring to a tradition that said, if a person didn't want to take care of their parents as those parents got older, and that happens at times, doesn't it? If you've had to take care of aging parents, you know what a struggle that can be. And there are times where your flesh recoils from that. Well, it was no different in those days. And so if a person didn't want to care for their parents as they got older, they could say that instead they gave their money to God. Now that sounds really good, right? We gave our money to God. It sounds really spiritual, but the real issue is that Jesus is pointing out is that they just didn't want their money to go to their parents. Now, for whatever reason that would be. But evidently this was a big deal. And they hinged their tradition again on the word of God in verses like Numbers 30, verse 2. 
This was the law of God being given to Moses. God says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Basically, God in that text was saying, look, if you're going to commit something to God, then keep that commitment. Okay, that sounds good. That's absolutely right. We're not going to disagree with God, certainly. But in their minds, the vow to God, and this is right, became more important than even a church or, excuse me, or a family member. Okay, no matter, so I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. In other words, I'm, I'm not going to care for my family. This is a better spiritual thing to do. I'm going to give it to, to God. I'm going to dedicate this money to God. And, and, and that's great. In fact, God himself will say not to put anything or anyone above him, right? But God also in the law would say, honor your father and mother, right? So again, the box when it's created for the physical becomes much easier to control as I feel I want to control the box instead of really listening to what God says. If God meant that he didn't want us to care for our parents, then he wouldn't have said what he did in passages like the Ten Commandments and many other places. But again, the simple point is, and Jesus is just simply attacking the same situation, because their hearts were empty of a true relationship with God, they missed the point. And so they blamed their spirituality on the fact that they just couldn't do that for their parents. They had to do it this other way, really just justifying themselves. And interestingly, to prove that this was just a human uh, answer to what they wanted to do, they could take back their offering if they so desired. In other words, if the giver of the money decided they needed the money more for themselves, they could take back the vow that they had dedicated to God. Oh, wait a minute, I actually need that kind of a thing, right? Which means the gift wasn't really for God in the first place, but just an outward sign of trying to fulfill some kind of outward law. And it was just selfish. It was a selfish heart, which again comes from an empty heart. To which Jesus responds with his famous words that he often, a word that he often used with uh, the religious leaders was to call them hypocrites. Meaning, you're not interested really in what God wants. That's not really what your heart is all about, but only what you want. And by doing so, you invalidate the very word of God. So Jesus clarifies by saying in verses 10 and 11, I'm not going to read that again, but you can look at this. Listen, food has nothing to do with righteousness or your spirituality. It has nothing to do with it any more than washing your hands a certain way. What is important, though, he would say, is that what goes in and comes out of the heart. And again, this wasn't new teaching. This is what the Hebrew people should have understood, especially the religious leaders. That was always God's message. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament again, to 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. This was the passage of when God is choosing David. Right? He goes to Jesse's house and he looks through all the sons and David's left. And, and Jesse says, well, you know, basically I got this one little scrawny little kid out in the back back here, but... He's not going to work. And so God says to him, don't look at the appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That's the other brothers. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at what? At the heart. First Chronicles 28.9, if you need another one. 
As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart, a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intention of the thoughts. Beloved, do you hear the Spirit today? God is in the business of searching hearts. At this very moment, God knows the motivation of your heart. You cannot hide from him the motivation of your thoughts, which come out of the motivation of your heart. And I'm the same way. We can't pretend that being spiritual is something we do outwardly. That's not going to cut it. It's not going to get us points with God. They're good. What the religious leaders did at times was good. But their hearts were so wrong, they were invalidating the very truth of what God is all about. Now all that leads us to the final point here is that true worship cannot come from an empty heart because empty hearts are more concerned, listen to this, about often the feelings of others versus what God says. Empty hearts are often more concerned about others versus what God actually says. Notice this. I thought it's very interesting. It's just nestled right here in the middle of all of this. You may have not even caught it. Peter comes to him and says, actually says the disciples come to him and says, do you not know or do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Now that's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Why do you think that Peter would have said this? Well, basically he's saying, Jesus, don't you know you just ticked off the premier religious leaders of Israel? Don't you care about that? I mean, these are high-profile people. Making it clear to us and to Jesus, who already knew this, that somewhere along the lines, the disciples had come to the place of believing that the religious leaders were the most important people in Israel. And that's not a wrong thing either. It is good to have religious leaders as important people in your life. In fact, God says, even of elders, as we'll see uh, with Peter Holman coming on, is that elders, especially those who work at teaching and preaching, are deserving of double honor. And so God does elevate this. But they were so engrossed with their leadership instead of their hearts under the leadership that they were more concerned about the offense that they that Jesus had caused these leaders than they were about who Jesus was. They were literally asking the God of creation if he cared that he offended these people who were hypocrites. That's strange, isn't it? Telling us again that the disciples still really didn't understand who Jesus was. They were still pulled in their physical minds, their psychological minds towards the things that they'd always grown up with and didn't quite understand who Jesus really is. And again, we're not much different from the disciples because we often don't speak up for the Lord, right? For what reason? We don't want to offend anybody, right? And we're living in a culture right now that is greatly offended at being offended, right? I'm going to be offended if you offend me. And so we ourselves find ourselves 
hindered or constrained or whatever because we see the physical presence of somebody in front of us and we forget that we're children of the living God. And so we're afraid to say things or do things that may either cause us problems in the relationship or uh, just maybe even worse. You know, we read all kinds of stories of how harmful things happen to people. But if you think about it, if Jesus is God, why would any true follower of his be concerned about offending somebody if they're trying to do what's right? I have to tell you, beloved, I'm speaking to my own heart here. That's why I'm bringing this up. Because I feel like the Spirit talked to me about this. If we truly believe that our God is the God of all gods, which there are none other, right? Why would we ever be offended or concerned about offending somebody when we're just simply trying to help them to see the truth? I mean... The true believer, and I'm talking about true believers, knows that God's word is the most critical for life, right? You believe that, right? The word of God is what you live by. I know you do because I know you. You know that this is what, that it is God's word that is what guides your life. Jesus said it is truth, and so you know that. You know as a true believer that you want to follow it at all costs, and even personal costs. And many of you have suffered through personal things. Through, through your dedication to the Lord. You as a true believer know that it, it requires a change in you. A change of your heart. There are times where you examine yourself like this morning. And you realize, you know, I guess I never thought about this. Or maybe I did think about this. And I realize there are some things I need to change. Lord, I want to change. Help me change. That's the heart of a true believer, right? Sometimes it even requires a physical location change. God will say, hey, I'm moving you over here. Well, your flesh will say, but I don't want to move over there. But you belong to God and you want to follow God. And so you say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Sometimes it requires even emotional changes. I don't want to not be mad at him or her. I like being mad at them. In fact, I take great joy at being mad at that person, right? <laughs> there you go, right? Hey, thank you for laughing and speaking up because you're just answering for the rest of us what we already feel. But you know, if you're a true believer, that you're, when your heart has truly been changed and you're really following the Lord, God is going to say, hey, I need you to check your emotions. I need you to come back in line. I need you to understand that that's not me. That's your flesh. And I want you to follow me. And sometimes you, even as a true believer, have to be willing to let even loved ones go. People who are the closest to you. Because you know that your dedication will be easily distracted from the Lord if you don't follow him first. That's what true believers know. And that's right which is how the religious leaders should have been teaching and responding. I mean, in reality, the religious leaders, the very people who were the teachers of God's word were supposed to be, should have been gathering the people up and saying, hey guys, this is the Messiah. That day's coming. Praise the Lord. 
Revelation teaches us that. Ezekiel teaches us that. Other passages of Scripture teach us that. There's going to come a day where the Hebrews, God's chosen people, will be the ones who point directly to the Messiah. But it wasn't at this point. And that was because they weren't true followers of God. And he was calling them out on them. Now notice what Jesus says to to Peter here. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. This is amazing. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now, that idea of the pit, just so you have the picture here, is that often they would dig pits along various places in the fields and stuff to put manure and things like that. And that's kind of the idea there. A blind man's going to fall into all of that. It's just dumb. I think what Jesus is saying here is that we're not to set out. I don't want you to make your life in such a way where you demoralize or you attack people who are against the gospel. But we are to understand anyone who lives their lives for the traditions of man, whatever they may be, that trump the word of God or desires to follow what they want over the word of God or live hypocritically will be dealt with by the Lord. That's what he's saying. Basically, look, don't worry about the fact that the people who are not really part of me are offended. They're not going to be a part of me because I've not chosen them. That's not your business. Your business is to obey me, to follow me. And don't worry about all the people that you have issues with except from a heart of love and purity as I lead you. And that's why Jesus says, like a plant that is uprooted, they will be removed from eternal life, at least in heaven. So again, if you've got to say something that offends somebody because you're trying to help them see the truth of God's word, don't worry about offending them. A friend of mine said to me one time, some years ago, he says, you know, Bruce, when we're offended of, when we're afraid of offending somebody, uh, what are we going to do? Offend them from hell one to hell two? I mean, I've never forgotten that because I thought, that's really good. Because if they're already on their way, you're not going to offend them in a situation that's going to make it worse. Because we don't have the ability to change their hearts anyway. Now, bless Peter's heart. Just going on here quickly. He wanted to understand. And so he says, Jesus, tell us about the parable. Tell us what this means. Jesus seemed to be a little sad there. You know, in the writing, it seems like Jesus is like, oh, Peter. Oh, okay, let me explain this to you. What really defiles you is your heart. Always pointing back to the same thing. Peter, listen, if you put garbage into it, you're going to get garbage out. All right, the G-I-G-O thing. Meaning, notice the last part of the verse, when you fill your heart with evil thoughts, isn't this why we as parents say to our kids, look, no, don't, don't think about that. Just while we were down there with our grandkids, uh, Everett, our grandson, again, was scared in the night and and so I uh, went into the room there, and he said, but probably I'm afraid that somebody's going to come and do this and this. And, that. and first thing I said was, I know what the problem here is, is that your thoughts are not right. We've got to start having better thoughts. And so whatever you do with a five-year-old, um, and praying a lot, saying, Lord, help me know what to say to a five-year-old right now. But this is the issue, right? Whatever you want to think about, fill your mind with that. Jesus is saying, don't fill your heart with evil thoughts, because... That's the people who are the unsaved. 
murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fake witnesses, slander. All of that defiles. And Jesus is basically saying he's going to deal with all that. He's going to deal with it all. In fact, each one of these that he brings up here deal with every aspect of a relationship. Notice he talks about the sexual temptations, the relationships that we have with one another, our minds, our religious life, everything. When our hearts want to follow its sinful desires, all of these things come to the surface because the soul is corrupt. And it's much easier to follow the sinfulness of our lives than it is the holiness of our lives. Isn't it? Did you find that to be true? Man, I can sin easy. It takes no effort at all to sin. But it takes a lot of effort to be spiritual, to follow the Lord. And so, beloved, listen, I just submit to you this morning, I just want to say to you this morning that empty hearts honestly are the biggest problem in the church. And I say that lovingly. I say that to myself. Hearts I'm talking about that are empty of spiritual truth, spiritual desire. I'm not talking about head knowledge. I hope you get that by now. I think that's why so many churches are spiritually lifeless. I mean, there may be lots of people. The music may be amazing. There may be unbelievable activities that are going on, but there's a deadness to it. And that's why people come and go because there's just no spiritual life. So numbers are not an indicator of whether the spirit is at work or not. That has nothing to do with anything. What the spirit wants is our hearts. So let me ask you the question this morning as I close. What's the greatest desire of your heart right now? I think that's a good question for us to ask. What is the greatest desire of my heart? Is it to follow God no matter what he asks of me? Or is it to kind of still do what I want to do? That's a good indicator of where we are. And that's going to be a forever battle. It's not going to be a one-time thing. The decision can be one time, but it's going to be a forever battle. And that's why the Lord tells us through people like the Apostle Paul, we need to regularly keep on, and it's really not putting on, but we're to keep on our spiritual armor because we're going to be hit with the flesh and we're going to follow our traditions and we're going to follow the things that we want to do. And the constant question from the spirit is, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where's your heart? And it doesn't matter what the situation is. It's always the same thing. Where's your heart in this? And when we know where our heart is, we will turn to the Lord for help, not just for touching the fringe of his garment, but to touch him because he is the one who can fix us and get us through whatever we're going through. Amen? All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful day of worship, this time of worship together. It's just really wonderful to pray together as we did early this morning and then even now in this time. It's wonderful to sing together the joys of the Lord from our voices and song. It's wonderful to hear your word and and to feel the purifying effect of it. And, and every true believer knows that. There's a, as one, uh, one of our youth pastors said years ago, there's like this holy scrubbing that comes from your word. But yet it feels so good, just like taking a bath or a shower after a long, hot, sweaty day of work, and you just come out refreshed. Uh, we come into your presence often feeling dirty, 
and undone and we leave refreshed because we've been open to you. And so Lord, help us to take the words of the text this morning, this situation, and examine our hearts, leaving here doing that regularly, repenting and fully embracing you as our Lord and our God. And Lord, we know that just like you did with the disciples and many others, uh, you will give us a spring in our hearts that will be compared and paralleled to nothing. Thank you for your love, Lord, we pray. Thank you for our time together, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone stand, please. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take Him at His word Just to rest upon His promise Just to know the said the Father, we just thank you so many, so much for Jesus, Lord. We ask forgiveness of the times that we don't trust your word, that we, we take our trust in our own mind, in our own thoughts, in our own perceived wisdom. Lord, we thank you for your patience and your love for us. Lord, we just thank you so much that you're willing to tarry long before you end this world that we live in. So, Lord, just give us give us boldness. Help us to be courageous when we need to speak for you and not worry about anything else but speaking the truth. Thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.